John chapter 3. Well, actually, John chapter 2, verse 23, and then we're going to move into chapter 3, Lord willing. I know that... uh, Sometimes the headings and the uh, the outlines inside a a Bible accompanied by the chapter and verse divisions um, just naturally lead to us maybe separating events out that seem not to flow one from another. But there's a flow between the temple cleansing that we've been going over the last couple of weeks and this signature passage in John chapter 3 there's a paragraph in between verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2 that link us between the temple cleansing and what is to follow with uh, the record of this remarkable amazing life changing conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus um This is a very famous passage of Scripture, obviously, and contains in this chapter, probably in chapter 3 that is, the most uh, famous verse of the Bible. A verse that's special to all of us and for many people, especially those maybe who have been raised in a Christian home and been in church life for a long time, might very well be the first verse uh, that many of us ever memorized, put to memory. And that would be, of course, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a beautiful verse. They're all beautiful. It's like Greg and I were talking about a while ago just joking around. It's, <laughs> it's like, what is your favorite verse? And That's a moving target. Sometimes it might be one, but it often becomes the one maybe you're studying at the time or the book or the passage you're studying at the time. It's all God's Word from pillar to post. And it's all important. It's all necessary. It's all put in there for a reason. And um, it's just that some passages rightfully command more attention in our lives than others for various reasons. But for this one, it's obvious because in this passage of Scripture, the Lord Himself is making it very clear um, that He's the way to eternal life. He is eternal life. And that in order for someone to enter into the kingdom of God, they must be born again. And there's so much here. So much here. And we're going to take some time. Hopefully, God willing, uh, we're not going to sprint through this. We're going to take our time going through it. We need to. In kind of a crude... Uh, overarching outline for me um, uh, would be um, in chapter 3, condemnation, Christ, cross, and crown. But before we get to that, um, we can better understand what's going on here, I believe, by looking at verses 23 to 25. So we'll start there, Lord willing, and we'll just read through Um, verse 17 of chapter 3 and then we'll focus in on those verses and a couple of the first verses in chapter 3 after we finish 2. For purposes of a title 
I kept being drawn back to just speaking of this as a series, namely good news for the guilty conscience. Good news for the guilty conscience. Uh, let's pray before we open up the Bible. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this uh, Word that we have in front of us. We know it's alive and we receive it as such. We receive it this morning with meekness and holy fear and anticipation. Expectations, Lord. They're high for us. Maybe not as high as they need to be, but they're high for us because here's what we know as repentant believers. You've used Your Word and you use Your Word to transform us. The Holy Spirit lives inside us now. He took up residence the moment He gave us the uh, grace of faith and repentance. And then, now, lives there to give us understanding and insight to what He wrote, which is the Bible. So Lord, by Your Spirit and for Your glory, transfigure Yourself in front of us once again today as we peer into the Word and and the Word peers into us. We're sanctified by Your Word. Your Word is truth. We believe every jot and tittle of it. And we know that none of it's going to pass away. And it will be fulfilled to the every jot and tittle of it. The smallest punctuation mark in the original languages, every bit of it, is there. And it's divine, it's holy, it's eternal. It's completely trustworthy because it's from You and You're completely trustworthy. And it became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Lord, I've often said before that the, the meaning of the word gospel is an understatement. To call it good news is absolutely correct. But it seems like we're to put some other things on there. and <laughs> Exceedingly good news. Infinitely good news. The greatest news ever. The best news ever. The news that everyone must hear. And um, and so we're, we're thankful, Lord, for not just the plan of salvation, but the man of salvation who accomplished and fulfilled the plan of salvation that you, that you determined before the foundation of the world. Thank you for making us part of your body. Convict us where we stand in need of conviction. Encourage us where we stand in need of encouragement. Guide us where we stand in need of direction. Do all the things that Your Word... These are the expectations we have because You're behind this. <laughs> you're in this. And You accomplish this. These expectations are not from me, but they are from Your Word because they rest in our expectation from You, the God who loves us and demonstrated it on the cross of Calvary. Thank You for everyone here. Give us ears to hear. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's read Beginning in verse 23 of chapter 2. Now when He, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. And He had no need that anyone should testify of man for He knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How could these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. It says that Jesus was there at the time of the Passover. We know that that draws our attention back to verse 13 of chapter 2 when He cleansed the temple. It's the time of Passover. This is the beginning of His public ministry which spanned approximately three years as you know and culminated in of course His crucifixion. But here at the beginning we're coming off and let's remember where we are but we're coming off of this recreation week. This is what we've called the new creation week. The seven days that are recorded for us in John 1 and 2. And now we're moving into and flowing into His witness. He's there in Jerusalem. He's done a remarkable thing, we know. And that is, He cleansed the temple. And what was so remarkable about that is that when He went in there, we've talked about this, there were scores of people in the temple. And He by Himself commanded the control of that temple. He walks in there as a with no pomp and circumstance, no delegation, just some disciples that had been called already that are accompanying him, but he's not up there with some kind of authoritative symbol on him. He doesn't have a badge. He doesn't have anything. But yet, through his power, he's, they all stand down and he cleanses the temple. And so while he's there, he's also, though, performing miracles and signs. We know that he did the water into wine in Cana of Galilee. But here we're in Jerusalem now. And you'll remember that at the end of John, John says that he did so many miracles that if we were tried to write them down, we wrote all of them down. I suppose that all the libraries in the world and all the books in the world could not contain all the acts of what he did. But we have what God intended for us to have, but here's what we can understand. He's in Jerusalem and miracle after miracle is being performed. 
people are being healed. Miraculous things are happening. And it says in verse 23, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. Many believed in His name when when they saw the signs which He did. Then it says though, but Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. I want you to notice that believed, translated the word translated um, believed in verse 23, and the word translated commit, you might want to just underline those two to, to remember this, are the same underlying Greek word. So you could really read this that many believed in Him, but Jesus did not believe in them. It's the same word. I have it in my... I didn't look at some of the other modern translations. It might be the same as some of yours. But in the New King James Version I'm using here, believed is one rendering, commit is the other, but it's the same Greek word from which it comes. Why? Because He knew what was in their heart. This is one of the things that ought to terrify us about coming judgment if we're not saved. And that is, and you'll remember this, and we've talked about this before, but in Romans chapter 2, there are four characteristics that are set forth for us about God's judgment. And they culminate in the one that's the most frightening, frankly. And you'll remember that it is His judgment and His according to truth. His judgment um, uh, is according to one's deeds. Uh, and His judgment is impartial. But this fourth one, His judgment is according to the secrets of men. The Bible says that everything is open and laid bare. In Hebrews, it says everything is open and laid bare and naked before the One in whom, to whom we must give an account. So what's in man's hearts, Jesus reads like a book. And that's very important in understanding and appreciating this conversation that's about to take place that we just read about in chapter 3. They were enamored with the sensational. See, the miracles that Jesus did were tied to His message. The miracles were a means to get attention to the message. It wasn't the other way around. The miracles attested to His claims, but the claims were His main focus. Even when He was healing in Mark's account, he was healing people all through the night. And he got up the next day, and there were more people there. Word had got out. And of course, you could imagine how it spread about there's healing here. People are being freed. They're, they're being healed, and demons are being cast out. And he says, you know what? Let's go over here to the next village because this is why, and preach because this is why I came. This is why I came. And so. The miracles divided the people that saw them into several different camps. The miracles were testimonies of Jesus' claims and identity, but they were also tests. Always remember that when you see the miracles. They're testimonies of who He is, but they're also tests designed to test and expose the hearts of those who witnessed them. It's still true today. It's a test. Three main divisions 
One would be, hallelujah, that many who saw the miracles trusted Him and looked to Him to save them. One great example of that, vivid example of that, is the healing of the blind young man, you'll remember. And all the religious guys came up around and said, how did he do it? And they're trying to catch him. Did he do it this way, that way, to try to see if he broke some law or whatever? And he winds up saying, listen, here's the deal. All I know is, is a little bit ago, I was blind and I could see now. But then the rest of the story that doesn't get a much of attention is that Jesus made His way back to him. And He said, what do you think of the Messiah? Would you believe in Him? I who speak to you am He. So He healed him with physical sight so that He could get to him to heal him with spiritual sight, which is what concerned Jesus more than anything. So many would trust Him when they saw the miracles. But then many would trust the sensational. And that's what we have in this crowd. We have the sensational. Oh, man. He's come to take over. Could you imagine if this power were marshaled against Rome? Could you imagine what would happen if this is the Messiah and He's got this kind of power? Then Rome's days are over. Because they're looking for the kingdom. They're looking for a Messiah. Remember, not to die on the cross. They're looking for a Messiah to make Israel the crown jewel nation that God prophesied it was and could be and would be in the Old Testament. They said, listen. And they were trusting. They were saying, hey, if we could just wield this power. It's almost like nuclear power when you find it. You know, when they, they, they came up with nuclear power. And they're thinking, man, if we could take this and run power plants with it, could you imagine the possibilities. They were enamored with His works, but not His words. Not Him. They wanted Him and believed in Him for what He could do for them. Not much has changed, has it? This is the modus operandi of the prosperity gospel. You trust Jesus. Your goat won't die. Money will flow in. I just heard recently on the on a, a message of the affirmation that a very prominent church gives every time they take up the offering. I didn't know this. A very influential church. And it was all about if you you know what? Money's gonna come my way, we're giving this so we can get the next raise, and it'll be a bigger raise than it would have normally been. We're not gonna get fired, we're not gonna do everything's gonna work out this way, that way. They make this affirmation every time they take up the offering. Belief in Him, but He didn't believe in that. That's not saving faith. That's not looking to Him out of desperation to say, and we'll say more about this later, God, I look to You to save me because I'm lost and hopeless and I believe You died for me. I'm putting my faith in You. I quit trying to save myself. I need to be saved. If I can get that from You, I want nothing else. And I care little else what I get from You. I want You. It was a great moment one time when I found out that my son wanted to go with me to the store. Not because we were going to get candy or not because he hoped that we would get some candy. Because he wanted to hang out with me. You see how it tests you? How it tested them. And then you have the other crowd. And this is Nicodemus. 
He's in this crowd, but yet he's not in this crowd because God's working and drawing him. You can see it. Then you have the other one. They're envious and jealous of him. They look at the miracles. And they're threatened by the fact that the attention that they were getting from the crowd and the control they had over the crowd, they could see it slipping out of their hands. Even to the point. This is how bad it got. (laughs) Even to the point where they attributed the work that was done to Him or through Him to Satan. You remember? And Jesus said, Hey, listen, if this is from Satan, then Satan's divided against himself and his kingdom can't stand. How is it that he could be doing something like that? And that marked the end or the beginning of the end of his offering of the kingdom to Israel. And it ushered in their fervent commitment to destroy him. So the miracles tested them. And Nicodemus was in this crowd. Now Nicodemus was there more than likely when the temple was cleansed. He watched all of this. And then it got his attention because he's thinking, man, there's some power and authority here that's different. There's a wind, there's a new wind blowing here. And then you can just think as the teacher of Israel, which he's referred to later by the Lord Himself with the article the, which means that he was the teacher in Israel. He was the main kahuna. He was the big guy, teacher in Israel. And he's examining these claims. He's watching and he's seeing these signs. He saw Jesus take control of the temple. He saw what was going on there. And he's quietly assessing this. I don't believe at all he was open with the rest of them to the things he was thinking. But he had to be thinking, wow, this is something different. Because God was breaking through his disbelief and his hardened heart. You could see it. There's a progression in the Scriptures of Nicodemus. But we'll get to that later. So, when he ends 25 and he comes in to 3.1, he said, Jesus knows what's in man and now there was a man. So, you can link those two to say that this man is one of the men who believed in Him, but Jesus didn't yet believe in Him. So one of them comes and his name is Nicodemus. Right now, he's not seeking Jesus, but Jesus is seeking him. Let's go on record as to please remember and affirm that the Scriptures make it abundantly clear that men do not seek God. That God seeks men. No man seeks God. The Bible bothers to say that three times. And no man seeks God. God seeks us. We run away from Him. And Jesus knows all too well and has preordained that this happened. And Nicodemus comes to it. So one of the men, we assume, and I think it's a very reasonable assumption, that one of the many spoken of in verse 23 is Nicodemus. I believe in you. Because there's no way that a natural man without God leading him could do these miracles and command and stand down the entire temple guard of which he was one of the guys that was in charge of it. 
at a moment's notice, Nicodemus could have had him arrested. And he couldn't bring himself to do it. Much has been made of the fact that he came to Jesus by night. Books have been written on the fact that he came to Jesus by night. Some have said, here's what that means. He came to Jesus at a time that was not day. <laughs> you know, there's a, you don't read into it. But I'm convinced, I believe, that he came to him by night because he's still a member of the ruling class. He's still got a lot to lose. <laughs> a lot to lose by following Jesus. But he can't resist. So he starts out and he's investigating and he's doing it secretly. But we'll find out later on in the Gospel of John that his faith becomes very public. Very public. And ultimately, tradition says he did lose everything and was banished from Israel for following Jesus. But he's not there yet. He's not yet born again. He's in that crowd. I believe it. This has got to be from God. That ought to tell us something. Let me tell you something, dear ones. I believe in George Washington. I'm very convinced that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I'm very convinced that George Washington existed. I'm very convinced that Napoleon existed. I'm very convinced that Winston Churchill existed. But I'm not trusting any of them to do anything for me. Most people believe in the existence of Jesus. But that is not what it means to be born again. That's not saving faith. So there was a man of the Pharisees, and we know... Oh, too well. Pharisees. That comes from a root word meaning separation. That's what it means. They separated themselves from the rank and file because, after all, they were religious. They want to be tainted by nasty sinners. There was about 6,000 of them in Israel. And of the 6,000, there was an elite group of the elite groups which would be the ruling class of them that were the controllers of not only the Jewish nation under Roman authority, but also certainly Judaism. They were the Luktus. And of that group, of the elite, of the elite would include Nicodemus. Look what it says. He was a, he was a Pharisee, a ruler of of the Jews. That would mean that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin were 70 chosen from all the leaders of Israel, the elitist of the elite that led the nation but yet were subservient to Roman rule because they ruled the world at that time. This was a prominent Man, Tradition has it that he was a, probably the third richest man in Jerusalem. Uh, very wealthy. Very well respected. And here's what... <laughs> this is so strategic. This is so strategic for this man to be at this place at this time and Jesus having this kind of conversation with him. And here's why. In, in this new creation week that we've called it. Okay, we come off of these seven days. You remember we talked about it. The seven days are set forth for us in the end of chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, it carries us all the way to, to, to chapter 2, culminating in the wedding at Cana and then the cleansing of the temple. 
And then here this conversation takes place and he's conversing with the best man that flesh could ever produce. Now think about that. A one-on-one conversation with someone who represents the flesh as good as it can get. This guy was a good man, quote-unquote. He was a religious man. As a matter of fact, his name, Nicodemus, comes from the root word Nike, Nike, which means victor, victor over the people. He was named a noble name. This guy's a cut above. This guy is head and shoulders above all the rest. He had excelled in Judaism. He had excelled in Judaism. But here's why I titled the message the way I titled it. Hope for the guilty conscience. Because here's what I believe. I believe that when he came to Jesus, he was trying to find out how he could have hope and peace and forgiveness because everything he invested his hope in had failed him. It's been once said, very well said, by a prominent theologian of old, that a guilty conscience is the mother of all heresy. That is exactly true. That is exactly true. It's that, you know what, if I'm going to tweak and turn, it's so that I can do something other than humbly bowing to the cross to appease my guilt. That's what it is. There's no telling how many things are done right now in Jesus' name simply to appease guilt without carrying it to the cross. Why? Because the cross demands humility. The cross demands that I admit that I cannot save myself. And by the way, I'm lost. And our pride is so nasty and so sorry and so pervasive that we got in the flesh that nobody wants to drop their pride. Those who come to the cross are broken by the weight of their sin and the beauty of the Savior. And they get there, and when they get there, they bow, brought there by Him, to say, God, I am nothing. I deserve Your judgment. I agree with You against myself. Nicodemus is not there. Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, You might very well be the ruler. I have finally met up here. Think about it. He's thinking, okay, I'm the teacher in Israel, and I've got these problems inside me. I cannot get peace. I do not have peace. I do not have peace. And I have been doing everything that my religion says that I should do to have it. And I don't have it. And I don't have anybody to talk to. Because after all, I'm the teacher. Who do I go to? If I go to somebody, it's going to undermine my authority and credibility. I thought you were the teacher. You're asking me this? If he went to somebody, I tell you what he'd find out. I don't have peace either, teacher. We're going in the wrong direction. As a matter of fact, God raised up someone who was a peer of His and saved him and Nicodemus, I believe. We'll talk about that later. So Nicodemus is holding his cards. He's looking. He said, you got to be from God. You remember, they're religious separatists by belief and practice. 
straight about all matters concerning the law, the Sabbath, tithing, circumcision, ceremonial cleanliness, eating only certain foods, fasting, observing holy days, and then taking all of those commands in Scripture and adding their own to it so they could continue to hold control over the people. Ridiculous things, especially as they relate to the Sabbath. Boy, that was the one that they really zoned in on. Don't look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair in your head and be tempted to lift up your hand and pull it out and that would be violating the Sabbath. Don't tie a knot on the Sabbath except only knots that you can tie with one hand. Honestly. These are the things, the foolish things they came up with. And they did that in order to shore up their pride and keep control over the people. Because if you set the rules and you interpret them, you can always claim that somebody else broke them and use that to control people. This is the guy, the leader. This is the leader of those guys. That's the kind of guy he is. But he's coming at cover of night because he sees something different in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is drawing him. But he's guarded because look what he calls him. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, teacher. Right? He's been a peer now. I'm the teacher, but I've never performed the signs that you've performed. I can't get these guys to act the way you got them to act in the temple. For me, it's like herding cats. For you, one word out of your mouth. And buddy, everybody, it's like, almost like when he said, peace be still. And you had a tumultuous lake. And then you had Lake Placid in the immediate. And everybody's going, whoa, wait just a minute. This isn't natural or normal. But in this illustration of the need for a new creation, Jesus takes the best man that the flesh can produce. He's got it all. And says, you must be born again. You know what he was saying to him? You come to me as you are, but you cannot enter the kingdom and stay like you are. You must be born again. I've told y'all this illustration before. It just beautifully illustrates it, and I look back on it, and I wish I'd have had a picture of before and after. But there's a McDonald's that's on the way to us coming here, um, and it was uh, it sits on the corner of Old Forty One and Forty One. And it's a big McDonald's and a very busy one. And they completely leveled it and built a brand new one on the same plot of ground. And I'm just cheap enough to think, why don't you just remodel the one you had? But the one that they had, the new one, doesn't look anything like the old one. As a matter of fact, the new one is faced this way, parallel to the road, whereas the other one was perpendicular to it. And they look completely different. Why? There was too much renovation needed to make any sense out of renovating what was there. So they had to level it and start all over. That's the Christian life. God has nothing to work with. We bring nothing to Him that He can or will use. Jesus said in this same book, the flesh counts for Does this sound familiar to you? Because he's <laughs> I'm studying this and I'm thinking, this is this is like this is like an illustrated commentary on what Paul said about himself. Let's look at it. 
But see now, see, he's Philippians. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. You could take Paul. Now Paul and Nicodemus, so similar and so similar. Paul was an excelling Pharisee. He was a professional Pharisee. He was a great Pharisee. And look what he says. And you'll remember this. Let's back it up to verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and what? Have no confidence in the flesh. However, he once had confidence in the flesh. And here were his reasons. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may be gained Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You know it. You know this already. But when he says, I count it as rubbish, as cow dung, that's what he said. I count it as cow droppings. Everything that I used to have confidence in, everything that I thought was going to make me right with God is cow dung to me. It's rubbish. This is Nicodemus before God showed him that. And he's showing him that in this narrative. Nicodemus, can I tell you this, Nicodemus? Please let me say this to you. Everything that you bring to the table is of no value. Everything that you bring to this table is of no value. Nada. Zero. None. It will only ensure eternal condemnation. You will perish. You will die in your sins. You'll never be wiped clean of them and you'll spend the rest of eternity having to pay for them. That had to be a shocking reality to somebody who thought he brought something to the table. He's listening for some missing piece. Nicodemus, if you'll just straighten this area out of your life, if you'll just tweak this a little bit. I love the way Jesus just cuts to the chase. Look what He says. So He's in this camp. This is from God. But it's got belief in Jesus, but not saving faith yet. Not yet. But affirms. This is from God. He didn't attribute the works that Jesus did to the devil in order to discredit it or challenge. He's asking sincere questions. This guy is not trying to argue. This guy hasn't got some kind of axe to grind. He's none of that. Humility is starting to take root in his heart because his religion didn't work for him. And Jesus cuts to the chase and says, he said, no one can do what you do except God's with him. And Jesus seems to just completely ignore that comment and say, Nicodemus, I know why you're here. 
It's night time. Let's get to the point. And he says, he answered him. He didn't answer him. He didn't answer a question because he didn't ask one. He answered him on why he came. And it says, Jesus answered him and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you see it? He didn't say, Well, yeah, you know, I appreciate, you know, what miracles did you really, what were you there to see? And have a little prelude or anything like that, then finally get down to it. Here's what happened. This man, who was a part of those people that believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them, a, a one of them comes to see him, cover of night, hedging his bets, cautious, guarded, but being sought out by God, which is every saved person. And when Jesus answers him, he cuts right to the issue. You see... Jesus, remember this, Jesus did not respond to what Nicodemus said. He responded to what Nicodemus was thinking. When he said, truly I say to you, he's not changing the subject. He's just getting through all the frou-frou and cutting to the chase as we would call it. Let's get to the heart of the issue. I know what you're thinking. I know why you're here talking to me. You've got a guilty conscience. You have spent your life motivated by your pride and your nasty self-righteousness to appease that conscience and you found no way to do it. And you have nobody to talk to about it because you don't have a peer. You're the teacher. People come to you for answers and you don't know who to go to to have one and find answers and i got news for you. What you bring here today in the state that you're in will not get you into the kingdom. He's expecting to hear. He's got to be more religious. He's expected to hear. He's got to try harder. He's expected to hear. Make reforms and doors will open to you. And you know what he winds up hearing? He winds up hearing Nicodemus only those who abandon all self-effort to earn their way can enter the kingdom. Everything you bring to the table, everything you believe, everything counts for nothing. hard for us to identify with because we've never worked that hard probably but at some level we have we can't be saved unless we admit and stop trying to save ourselves that's saving faith to look to Jesus out of repentant desperation and say save me like the thief on the cross did when he said teacher remember me when you come into your kingdom is that what he said no Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have mercy on me. I'm lost. I've got no hope. I'm about to die. I can't go make reforms. I can't change anything or undo anything I've done. And at that moment, He was born again. Hallelujah. It's a miracle. See, regeneration, some would call this 
the doctrine of regeneration. And that's exactly what it is. Regeneration is something that happens to you that you cannot do. Think about it. The fact that Jesus used born again to illustrate this truth. You and I had nothing to do with our birth physically. I didn't check in with God and say, God, I'd like to be born to Jack and Valir Lewis. Eh, brown hair. You, kind of, you know, um, and uh, I'd like to come into this place around 1961, that kind of thing. We made no contribution to it whatsoever. And Jesus is saying, that entering the kingdom of God is exactly like that. You make no contribution to it whatsoever. Admit you're bankrupt, Nicodemus. You're here talking to me. I know why you're here. I know why you're here. You are guilty. And that's a gift. A guilty conscience is a gift. The issue is, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to continue this path? Because you know it's led nowhere. There has to be a new birth. It's amazing how many people see Christianity as reforms. You know, we're, it's just a, it's just a exercise of reforms. And here's the instruction book. And here are the refor- this is the reforms that need to be made. And here they are. And if you'll make these reforms, then you'll go to heaven, and everything will work out, and God will accept you. And you just need to get your act together. And here's a way to do it. By the way, here they are. And this becomes an instruction book. Remember, he's not talking to a guy that didn't know the Bible. He's talking to a guy who had passages of the Bible memorized. I remember I went to a Gideon's meeting one time when they had the International Gideon's meeting here in Atlanta. And you know, they don't let pastors join Gideon's. You can't be a pastor and be a member of Gideon's. And so... I was invited by somebody who was a part of the church who was a Gideon. That's the only way a pastor can get in there. So I'm in there and I heard Nicodemus' testimony. And this guy was the head of a rabbinical school in Brooklyn, New York. He was a Jew's Jew. And he said, I heard him say it, I had the Old Testament memorized. He said, my God was my mind. Had a photo, apparently he must have had a photographic memory. And boy, when he read something, it stuck. And he knew the Scriptures like the back of his hand, but he was going to hell. And he began to list all his credentials. I turned to the guy that was next to me and I said, I see Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. It's also Nicodemus. And he said, I went into a hotel room. This is how the Gideon thing fits in. I went into the hotel room in Boston. Delta had messed up my flight. I was mad. So they put me up in a real nice hotel overnight in Boston. I go to the hotel. i got nothing to do. Didn't want to watch television. That's junk. Open up the drawer. It's a Marriott Hotel. So there was a Book of Mormon in there. And he said, I didn't feel like reading fiction. So I didn't read that. He said, but there was a Bible in there. And he said, for the first time ever, I opened up the Bible and I opened it up to John chapter 3. And I read what we just read. And he realized everything that I have lived for 
was a big fat zero and I got saved. I wanted to shout when I heard that testimony. Just reading. He said, he said the reason he went to the New Testament was I already knew the old one. So I was just going to read the other one to help arm myself against the enemy. That's how he put it. I want to read their playbook so I know how to effectively attack them. And said, so then I started looking in the Scriptures and I started seeing the old and new. <laughs> and how the new was fulfillment of the old and he saw Jesus and all of it. Isn't that wonderful? He was born again. It's amazing how much trust and confidence we put in our flesh, don't we? You right now and me at some level have far too much confidence in our flesh. Our own abilities, our own intellect, our own talent, our own gifts, our own opportunities. Whatever we can work to our advantage. And you know what God uses? God uses small people. Most people are too big for God to use. And until God makes you small, He can't do anything with you. Now we're all small. It's just whether or not we realize it. Whether or not we appropriate it. Whether or not we own it. Whether or not we admit to it. And turn to Him and say, Jesus, I'm nothing. i got nothing. I'm nothing apart from You. I can't offer anything to You. You're my entire hope. Now that's how you get saved. You quit, quit, quit trying to save yourself. You know, I thought of Judas when I was looking at this. If the person that made you says to you, it would have been better if you'd have never been born. You imagine hearing that? Man, if you if if so, if, if 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 his parents said that, it would be terrible. But that's not nearly as bad as the one who made him and his parents and knit him together in his mother's womb. He said it'd be better off. What's ahead, what's ahead for you? That's how bad hell is. It would have been better off if you'd have never been born than to go where you're headed. You imagine that. Well, after, after he did that, he did what people in verses 23 through 25 would do. You remember what he did? He went back to the same religious people that paid him 30 pieces of silver and basically asked him, help me with my guilt. Help me with my guilt. I've done something really bad. Take the money back. I know the first step has got to be that i got to give you the money back. And what they have for him? What they have for him? Nothing. They had what Jesus... I mean, they had what Nicodemus brought to this conversation. Nothing. Nothing. By contrast, we who are Christians who have been born again, and taken out of Adam. What a remarkable thing. No wonder Jesus said, don't be impressed with the... 
if I turned water to wine and all that other stuff, I mean, I made everything. Is that a problem? A cure cancer? I don't be impressed that your names are written in heaven. That ought to impress you. Because you know what that'll take? The Son of God being stripped naked and sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. Be impressed with that. We have. We have we have it. If you're saved, I know exactly what somebody should do for the guilty conscience. Because that's what God led me to do with it. And that's to go to the cross of Calvary. We've got the best news ever. We look around and we should have compassion over people who are wallowing in their sin and go, you know what? I don't deserve the forgiveness I've got any more than you do, but you can have it if you'll go to Calvary. We hold up the cross. I told you the other day, I've got a book in my library and it's uh, and I'm reading it right now. And of course, it's one of 80 I'm reading, so I don't know how far I've gotten with it, but I'm trying to read this one primarily. But, but uh, it says Christless Christianity and it talks about, Greg, how we've so secularize the church. If I had to write that book, if somebody said, why don't you write a book? I would write it, the, the crossless Christianity. A Christianity that takes the cross out. Because if you take that out, you've got nothing. But the cross right there is where burdens are lifted. The cross is where a guilty conscience is appeased. Completely! The cross is where that happened. And Jesus is telling him that. We'll find out later. And you know this already. In John chapter 19, there were two men who prepared Jesus' body for burial. And He brought... He was obviously wealthy because He brought ample spices to do the job. That job was normally reserved for women or slaves. And Nicodemus would have been he was one of them. And he took the body of Jesus and held that body in his arms. Same body. He stood in front of right here with no thought about his own life and what that was going to cost him. And it did cost him. He prepared his body for burial. Something happened. Judas went to the religious people with his guilt. Peter betrays Jesus. I mean, uh, denies Him three times and Jesus comes to him and his guilt is settled. So then he writes two books in the Bible, First and Second Peter, and not one word is said about his greatest failure. Because it's gone. Because if it's taken to the mercy seat, it doesn't make it to the judgment seat. Hallelujah. His guilt had been appeased because Jesus settled it at Calvary. What about you? Where do you take it? Where do you go? Who do you look to? And there are people around you who are drowning. You know what the most, one of the most dangerous things you can do with a person that's drowning? You have to be guarded and careful about how you save them because they might take you down with them as they keep struggling. Salvation is when you say, Uncle, I give up. I'm not going to try to save myself anymore. I'm not going to try to keep myself. If you're saved already, quit that too. It doesn't mean unholy living. It means draw upon that grace to incent holy living because you're so appreciative of it. This man's 
being drawn by Jesus Christ. He's the best that humanity had to offer at that time. The best. Pristine. And yet he lacked the one thing that was necessary, and that was to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you been born again? We're going to talk about some of the DNA of that because Jesus unpacks it in this text. I beg you, I beg you, to at least in some time in your personal Bible time, go through John chapter 3. Go through it with the people that are together with you, your own or individually. Go through John chapter 3. we got much to discover here. we got some stuff to just relish in and just absorb and oh it's, it's just glorious what does it mean to be born again and what are the evidences of it good news for the guilty conscience